Thanks very much, Mary. And um, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to come back. I really wanted to hear what Simon has to say. I've been reading his blog and within most, I don't know how he gets, I don't know how any of these bloggers get the time to do all this blogging. I don't get the time to read the blog, blogs, but um, but I do from time to time dip in to, um, to his blog and, and I find it coming up on, on various aggregators and telling me go and read what what Simon Ren Lewis has to has to say about things like austerity. I was contemplating uh, starting with some sort of semantics around austerity, and then I um, I heard there was a great debate today about s the semantics of austerity. So I'm behind the curve on that. So I, I think we'll just have to to go straight uh, straight to, to, to the speaker himself. Uh, Simon Ren Lewis has uh, his career. Uh, is it's really kind of spectacular. It started with the UK Treasury. Um, he's a macroeconomist, and and he did lots of taxation for macroeconomic uh, stuff in in the Treasury. Um, then, if I have the sequence right, he he spent uh, a good bit of time in NYSER, and a lot of us, I know some people in the room, have worked closely with with NYSER uh, economists and modelers over the years. So there, that's. Uh, there's a very much a, a Dublin connection with NYSER. And then he became a, a true blue academic, starting in Scotland, which uh, in Strathclyde, um, where I think he also had some Irish colleagues that were, were here. And then he, he was in Exeter, Exeter and, and now Oxford. And he's a professor of economic policy at the Blavatnik School. There, I said it without checking the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and economic policy is a great uh, interest of all of us, and especially of me. So I'm really dying to hear what he has to say about the general theory of austerity. I, su I suppose you take fo in the fo footsteps of Keynes. We'll see. I, I myself, let me let me put. I am one of these. Uh, if austerity is needed, it's a necessary evil. I am not one of the uh, an ideological enthusiast for austerity. I think there are such. So I hope the general theory accommodates people who envisage some periods of necessary evil austerity, as well as ideologues who want it for its own sake. Simon. Okay, thank you very much, Patrick. Uh, and thank you very much for the Academy. I'm, I'm very honored to uh, be here. Uh, and to, to present this, this keynote lecture. Um, this is the second time that I've ever been in Dublin. Uh, the first time was in 2011, I think, um, and things weren't looking wonderful then. Uh, and I'm glad to see that things are looking, or at least to my eye, uh, a little better. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about why uh, that is. Uh, the title here is a bit different from maybe the title that, that you saw. The subject matter is exactly the same, so don't worry. Uh, but uh, I kind of thought, I think it was originally called um, How to Avoid Austerity. And, and I was coming here by plane and, and look at, looking at the bookshop in the airport lounge, and it just sounded too much like the title that you'd see on a, a book in, in an airport. Um, so I thought I'd try and be... Uh, uh, a little bit more academic. Um, the allusion to, to Keynes's general theory um, is, is deliberate. Um, and in a sense, what 
the first part of my talk is going to be is about how we just ignored what Keynes had to say uh, some 80 years ago. Um, but the second half of my talk is going to be about why. Uh, and uh, there the question is, I think, very, very relevant. Was there something inevitable about austerity after this recession, after a very large recession? Uh, or has it been just an unfortunate conjunction of uh, events and accidents? And that's really going to be the theme of, of the second half of, of what I'm going to talk about. Okay, so that's basically the plan of the talk. Um, but to start with, I'm going to de define austerity in, in a way that suits me for this talk, uh, whether it suits anybody else, um, that is semantic. Uh, but this is how I'm going to define austerity. I'm not going to define it as just when the government has to cut spending or raise taxes, what I'll call fiscal consolidation. That happens many times. Uh, and I'm just going to take that need as given. Let's just suppose that there is an important need to cut deficits, to reduce government debt. I'm going to take that as given. We can, of course, argue about whether in any particular circumstance it should be doing that. But let's just assume that there are going to be some circumstances in which the government does have to cut its deficit. The key thing for me is, does that therefore imply a general rise in unemployment, what Keynes called involuntary unemployment in the economy. Does austerity in that sense have to be painful for everyone? Of course, austerity in the form of raising taxes or cutting government spending is always painful uh, in itself. But if it takes place in the context of a booming economy, then it's not nearly as bad as if it takes place in the context of rising unemployment. And it's the fact that we've seen fiscal consolidation taking place at the time of rising unemployment throughout uh, the world that, in a sense, defines the austerity of the last five years. Okay, so that's the, the plan of what I'm going to say. So the first part is going to be economics in the sense of why I think most of the time what I've called defined as austerity is unnecessary. Uh, and then the second half will ask why we've had it. Uh, and if it's going to be a general theory, then I've got to talk about different economies um, uh, in different situations. And essentially, I'm going to talk about, first of all, the global level. We've had austerity uh, in nearly all the major economies, so I can talk about austerity at the global level. And there, I think, it has been entirely unnecessary. And then I'll talk about austerity that might occur in a particular country because they have to reduce their debt or deficit much more than elsewhere, um, for example, Ireland. Uh, and there we'll find that I can't claim that austerity is uh, absolutely unnecessary. But nevertheless, I want to say some things about how much austerity one has to have in a country like that. Okay. Uh, so, let's think about the global level. Uh, and let's assume that at some point, at the global level, deficits are too high and therefore have to be cut back. The question is, does that always have to involve raising unemployment at the global level? 
And essentially the answer is, in my view, no. And it's an answer which essentially Keynes came to 80 years ago. And the reason the answer is no is that at the global level, after recession, there is no immediate need to reduce deficits and debt. And the world kind of knew that in 2009, which is why in 2009, in the UK, in the US, in fact, even in Germany, we had fiscal stimulus uh, to counteract the recession. But then the world changed its mind in 2010. And the kind of story that you hear is that, well, we had to change our mind in 2010 because government debt was getting very, very high, deficits were very large, and if we didn't do something then, the markets would somehow turn on us and stop buying government debt. And I think as a general story, the evidence for that is, is essentially zero. Um, the big piece of evidence against that is simply what happened, has happened to global interest rates. Real interest rates from 2010 onwards have gradually fallen on government debt. Uh, and you know, now in, in many countries are at historic lows. Um, what that tells you if interest rates hadn't fallen, the demand for people to buy government debt would have exceeded the supply by governments of that debt. Uh, so that doesn't suggest that markets were about to turn around and say we don't want to buy any more of this stuff. And the reason why you know, demand would have exceeded supply if interest rates hadn't fallen uh, is again just straight out of Keynesian textbook. The recession was characterized, this recession was characterized by people borrowing less, people saving more. And if people are a net saving a lot more, well, they've got to save something. And the feature of the financial crisis is people didn't want to save things that were risky. They wanted to save something that was safe. And government debt par excellence is the safe asset. So uh, there was no immediate need to cut back on debt and deficits. And what should have happened instead was that recovery should have been allowed to, to gather pace, to develop. Interest rates, crucially, should have been allowed to rise. And then we could have had fiscal consolidation. And the key point here is that fiscal consolidation in itself will tend to reduce demand. There's, there's a sort of a bit of a literature which kind of says, well, maybe it doesn't reduce demand that much. And, and there's something positive called expansionary fiscal consolidation. Uh, but if nothing else happens, both theory and all the evidence suggests that fiscal consolidation will reduce demand. And therefore, if you're just coming out of a recession where there's a lack of demand, that's going to make the recession worse or the recovery slower. However, the people who have found cases where you've had fiscal consolidation without having an increase in unemployment, those cases are real enough. And what's happened there is that the tendency for fiscal consolidation to reduce demand has been offset by something else. What it's been offset by is an expansionary monetary policy. So if the monetary authorities can cut interest rates at the same time as the government's cutting its deficits, then you don't need a rise in unemployment in the economy as a whole. 
Now, the problem about 2010 was that interest rates were at the floor um, pretty well everywhere. And so the monetary authorities couldn't use their tried and tested means of stimulating demand, which was cutting interest rates. Now, they did try various other things, and they were quite right to try other things. But implicit in what I'm saying is that these other things, like quantitative easing, uh, are just not as effective or as efficient as cutting interest rates. And therefore, austerity has led to a much slower recovery at best, or increased unemployment at worst. And that's true for the global economy. It's also true for the Eurozone. So there was no reason why the Eurozone as a whole needed to go for fiscal consolidation in 2010-2011. Uh, and monetary policy was either initially unwilling, but then unable to counteract that fiscal austerity. Okay, so that's why I think at the global level, what should have happened was any need for fiscal consolidation should have been delayed. And I'll give you a, a clue about how long it should have been delayed a bit later on. But you're probably immediately thinking, well, what about an individual economy which has to do rather more fiscal consolidation than the rest of the world? Because, for example, it allowed its financial sector to run riot and has decided to bail out that financial sector. Uh, surely, for a country like that, you would need extra fiscal consolidation, yes, and therefore that is going to be painful, it's going to raise unemployment. Well, if, you, if that country had a flexible exchange rate, it's not obvious to me that you would need higher unemployment. Because what's going to happen for a, a small economy that is sufficiently small it can't cut interest rates like you can at the global level, what will happen to offset the, the negative impact on demand of fiscal consolidation is a depreciation in the exchange rate and increase in competitiveness. And that's what you're seeing in, in Ireland at the moment, a recovery based on an increase in competitiveness. And if you have a flexible exchange rate, that increase in competitiveness can happen at the same time as the consolidation because the exchange rate can fall overnight. So there, there's no reason why you should have austerity, even if you have fiscal consolidation. But, as you know, Ireland doesn't have its own exchange rate. So what about a, a small open economy like Ireland, which is part of a monetary union? And unfortunately, here is the exception to this general idea that you don't need austerity. And the exception is because in the logic of, of a, what should happen in a small economy is exactly the same. The negative demand effects of fiscal consolidation will be offset by an increase in competitiveness. But if you don't have a, uh, your own exchange rate, that increase in competitiveness has to happen through cuts in prices and wages in, say, Ireland compared to the rest of the Eurozone. Now, if, if you can organize that uh, by getting everyone to agree to have a 10 or 15% cut in wages and prices overnight, then you'll, again, avoid austerity because you'll get the, the competitiveness boost at the same time as you get the negative effects of, 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 of fiscal consolidation. But unfortunately, we found 
uh, that internal devaluation can't happen magically uh, and it generally requires some unemployment to, to essentially force wages down, force prices down. So for that particular case, and I think only in that case, you do have to have some unemployment that goes with the fiscal consolidation because it's going to take time to get wage and prices down, to get that boost to competitiveness, to get that offset to austerity. So for a time, unemployment is going to have to rise. But that's only for an economy that has to have more fiscal consolidation than the rest of the world. At the global level, you don't need it. But even for this small economy like Ireland that needs more fiscal consolidation, I think that it's important to say that you don't necessarily need the amount of, amount of uh, austerity that you actually had. I think the amount of austerity you actually had was, wasn't the result of any kind of scientific calculation, but basically was what could be done at the time, given the situation that, that you were in. But if you did have the luxury of, of doing this scientifically, then there's a very simple bit of macroeconomics which says, and in fact, it's probably best to have a small amount of unemployment rather than a large amount of unemployment. And that bit of macroeconomics is called the Phillips curve. Okay, this is probably the most technical I'll get. Uh, so don't worry, it's gonna get less technical later on. But the reason I'm going through this is that this is something that even the best macroeconomists sometimes forget. I remember um, blogging about uh, a conference the IMF organized in Latvia. Latvia probably had the worst recession anywhere um, following the financial crisis as any other country. I think it had the biggest foreign output. And then of course after that huge foreign output, the economy started growing again, as the economy always does after you have this huge plunge in output. And uh, the Latvian government, along with the IMF, organized a conference to celebrate the success story of Latvian austerity, essentially. And I just couldn't understand this. And because uh, the IMF in particular, who were talking at this conference, we're just forgetting this basic bit of macro. So I'm just going to go through it very quickly. What the Phillips curve says, it's a relationship between inflation and unemployment. So it tells you how much extra unemployment you need to get inflation down. And remember, we're getting inflation down to make the economy more competitive, to offset the demand effect of a fiscal consolidation. But the thing about the Phillips curve, it says that the change in inflation depends on unemployment. Not the level of inflation, but the change. So you could do a sort of Latvian case. Say, say that you needed a 1% increase in unemployment to get inflation down by 1%. So you could have, a just in one year, a 10% increase in unemployment. And you would get a 10% decrease in inflation. That would make your economy 10% more competitive vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the Eurozone. And so you get that boost to competitiveness to offset the fiscal consolidation really quickly, but obviously at the cost of 10% unemployment. But you could do the following instead. You could have a 2% increase in unemployment in that first year, not 10%, but 2%. 
and that will reduce inflation by 2%. And then you bring unemployment back up and down again. But unemployment would stay 2% lower. So the next year, you will gain another 2% in terms of competitiveness. And then the following year, another 2% in competitiveness. So after five years, you will get to be 10% more competitive. So you would get the same result in terms of getting your increased competitiveness to offset the fiscal consolidation. But instead of having 10% higher unemployment, you just need 2% higher unemployment in that just one year, which is obviously better. So going for this kind of cold turkey, piling on the fiscal consolidation is really the least efficient way of doing it. Now you're probably thinking, well, okay, maybe I buy that, but we just didn't have the choice. We didn't have the choice because the markets were dictating how much austerity we had to have. And here probably I, I depart from uh, what some other economists would say. The, the crisis that started in 2010 and went on to 2012 in the Eurozone was not a crisis of the markets. It was a crisis induced by the European Central Bank. And the reason it was a crisis induced by the European Central Bank is if we take Greece out of the equation, Greece was special, then we know that the other countries that had a funding crisis, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, we know their finances were basically sound. Uh, they needed a period of fiscal consolidation, but that was possible. We didn't have to have default. And the reason we had a crisis was that the European Central Bank were not prepared to back those countries. They were not prepared to, in using the economic jargon, act as a sovereign lender of last resort. And the reason we know that is that eventually the European Central Bank was forced to act in that way. In September 2012, they brought in this thing called OMT, which uh, you don't need to know what that means. All you need to know is that European Central Bank started backing individual countries, acting as a sovereign lender of last resort. And that very quickly took away market fears. And I, I don't know this for certain, but my strong suspicion is that if the Euro European Central Bank had done that in 2010 rather than 2012, if it allowed Greece to, to default and then backed uh, other periphery countries, then those countries could have maintained market access and could have chosen what was the most efficient path of unemployment rather than piling on the fiscal consolidation. Okay, I think in a sense the last point on this slide says that although at least now the European Central Bank is doing the right thing, I think what's still unclear is how the European Central Bank or Europe as a whole decides whether countries like Greece or countries like Ireland. That still remains very messy and that could be dangerous if, if a country gets into problems again. Okay, um, I don't think I'm going to say anything about Greece. Um, uh, I get very upset when talking about Greece. Uh, the um, this is this is actually a this is my blog, uh, and this is a blog I wrote some some time ago 
Um, and I was trying to think about a similar case where uh, the, the kind of dominant power, in this case the, the Eurozone, had treated uh, a, a minor country uh, in, in such a bad way uh, in terms of trying to, to stick to some kind of dogmatic kind of economic but not really sensible macroeconomic line come what may and and the the example that occurred to me was was the Irish Baron of the 1850s and the British government's attitude or some in the British government unfortunately most in the British government's attitude to, to that famine and the kind of things that I was hearing about Greece well we need austerity to force Greece to to become more efficient, to do all this structural reform, sounded very much like the kind of things that Trevelyan said about Ireland at the same time. And the, the sharp but effectual remedy was his description of, of the Irish famine. Um, I think uh, a comment that Yanis uh, made about his short time as Greek finance minister was very indicative, where he talked about the discussions at the Eurogroup and how he wanted to talk about economics and, and all of his colleagues just didn't want to talk about economics. They wanted to talk about the rules. And that, I think, says something about how austerity kind of fits in with macroeconomics. It doesn't. Uh, OK. So if I had my way, we wouldn't have had this switch to austerity in 2010. Um, what we would have had was kind of the kind of sort of increases in government spending during the recovery that we'd had in previous recessions. Something like sort of 2% a year, pretty sort of normal standard kind of stuff. And I did some back of the envelope um, uh, calculations. This is a different blog that I, I wrote about. And this, this chart here is for the United States. The red line is what actually happened to US GDP. Uh, and the, the yellow line is sort of productive potential. It's, it's how far you can push GDP before inflation starts increasing. And you can see there's still, by 2013, there was still a big gap because in the US, uh, we had lots of fiscal consolidation, um, which delayed the recovery and, and made the recovery much weaker. And I did some calculations which showed, well, what happened if we just had done nothing in terms of fiscal consolidation? We didn't have a stimulus. We, we had the stimulus in 2009, and then we just kind of had normal growth in government spending. And that's the blue line. And you can see that by 2013, we've kind of got back to uh, potential or capacity. In other words, we've completed the recovery by 2013. At that point, we could have started having fiscal consolidation because at that point, interest rates for sure would have been above zero. And so interest rates could have offset the demand effect of fiscal consolidation. Okay, so that's the, the economics, the macroeconomics as I see it. Um, and really, I, I'm just here echoing people like Paul Krugman, who essentially says that the, the intellectual battle over austerity has been won. Um, uh, the macroeconomic rationale for austerity has just shrunk, shrunk to zero. 
but that raises an obvious question, which is, why did it happen? And here I think there's a real tension between two kinds of ways of, of talking about it. One way, which again, I think Paul in the, with the US perspective will tend to talk about, was in a sense, general forces which were pushing us to, to austerity, whatever. But another possible description is that in a sense it was just some historical accidents that, that got us here. And I'm, I'm not sure which way to come down on, on this, and you'll see that's reflected in, in what I've got to say. Two things that suggest it maybe isn't something that was bound to happen, that maybe it was kind of accidental. They both begin with G, and the first is Greece. If you, there's the, this um, slide is, is the top of a, an IMF internal evaluation of their own policy through the recession. I think it's, it came out last year. And um, their evaluation is very interesting. It says stimulus in 2009, absolutely right. Reversing that, moving to fiscal consolidation in 2010 was a big mistake. The interesting thing is they then say, well, why did we make the mistake? Why did the IMF make that mistake? And looking through the documentation, they say, we misread what was happening in Europe. We essentially panicked. We thought that what was happening in Greece was going to spread to everywhere. And so we had to have consolidation. And they go on to say that was a mistake. So maybe we're just unlucky. Maybe because of Greece, everyone did literally panic. Uh, and if Greece hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had austerity. The second accident, if you like, uh, which also begins with G, or the second sort of peculiarity about the particular circumstances, is Germany. Uh, now, if you, if you survey macroeconomists in the US, in the UK, hopefully in Ireland as well, uh, you'll find that most of them hold pretty conventional Keynesian views. Fiscal consolidation does reduce demand will tend to raise unemployment if you don't do anything else. Uh, but the one country where that's an exception at the level of policy is Germany. For example, on their Council of Economic Advisors, uh, sometimes called the Five Wise Men, five economists on that, one of them, Peter Bofinger, is the Keynesian on that group. Now, that would never happen in the UK. That would never happen in, in the US. In fact, if we did have five wise men in the UK or the US, if one of them wasn't a Keynesian, they would be labelled as the non-Keynesian. So in that sense, Germany seems, seems very different. And why this matters, of course, is given Greece, then you know, what was in a sense the, the, a really important influence in how that was interpreted, obviously Germany was, was very important in that. Um, one of the things I wondered about is, is why Germany seems to be an exception. In terms of the economics that's actually taught in Germany, it's just like the economics taught everybody else. I mean, they, they all learn the Keynesian economics. So it seems to be something that, that happens at the level of, of policy. And various, there are various ideas that have been put forward. There's a kind of deep-seated fear of inflation going back to, to the hyperinflation before the war. Uh, the word for... Debt is, um, uh, you know, 
um, it's the same as, as, as something like shame or I can't remember the exact word, but anyway, a linguistic explanation. Uh, more interesting is this notion of auto-liberalism, uh, which is sometimes said to be the dominant economic philosophy within Germany. Um, I, I don't find any of those explanations actually particularly convincing. Auto-liberalism, for example, I think is, if you look at what it is at its basics, it's much more compatible with Keynesian economics than, than neoliberalism is. Uh, so, so I don't find any of those that, that convincing, but, but nevertheless, Germany is, is unusual. I think perhaps what was more important, perhaps, than, than some kind of philosophical antagonism to all Keynesian in, in Germany, was what happened before the financial crisis. And that was that, that Germany essentially undercut everybody else in the Eurozone. Um, now, of course, Ireland was doing the opposite, had much too high inflation, but Germany had lower inflation than France, for example, or Italy. And what that meant was that it was gaining a huge competitive advantage so that when the, the recession hit, uh, unemployment there, also as a result of, of various labor market reforms, didn't increase. And so in a sense, uh, from a German perspective, all the complaints of people in the rest of the Eurozone, well, uh, didn't have the force that it might have done if Germany had been in the same position. And, and in fact, that's, that's my own pet theory about why Keynesians in, tends not to be strong in, in, in Germany, and that is that they have an alternative to, to fiscal stimulus. They want to stimulate the economy, and that's they undercut their neighbors, because Germany has been in a fixed exchange rate system for an awful long time. But anyway, that's, that's in a sense a bit of a detour. Germany's views are uh, what they are, and so maybe it was just unfortunate that Greece was in the Eurozone and therefore um, we, we had subsequent austerity. So those are the sort of particular reasons why maybe it was just an unfortunate accident. But to counter that, I think, are some things which are much more general. And, and are much more relevant if you're looking at an economy like the UK or the US. If you look at, at the political spectrum and those on the right of the political spectrum, they opposed fiscal stimulus in the UK and the US even in 2009. So they were against the, the stimulus that we had at the global level uh, in 2009. And partly for that reason, the stimulus was too small in the US. Um, that's the first reason why, in a sense, you might think there's something else going on besides Greece and Germany. The second reason why you might think there's something else going on is that I think by 2012, it was obvious to most economists that the debt funding crisis was located just in the Eurozone. We weren't all going to become like Greece, but austerity continued. And indeed, I think still remains the dominant discourse amongst policymakers uh, in um, the US and the UK and the Eurozone. And I think even at the level of the Eurozone, we need to explain why the opposition to German views has been so mute, or almost non-existent. Um, you know, plenty of Keynesians in France, for example. So what might be this more general theory of why austerity happens? 
Um, and I think it comes from, from two things. The first is just the popular appeal following a very large recession where everyone is, at a personal level, tightening their belt, either not being able to borrow or saving more. The popular appeal of saying, well, the government should be doing the same. It's only fair the government should also be tightening its belt. The government has, has maxed out its credit card, uh, to quote a, a well-known UK politician, um, and therefore needs to start paying back its borrowing. That has a lot of popular appeal. It makes sense to a lot of people. Um, and it makes sense to a lot of people, particularly when they're doing the same themselves. And given the Great Recession was, I think, reasonably described as a balance sheet recession, where people are, we have a recession because people are saving more, uh, then in that sense, this popular appeal is going to resonate more to them. But of course, there's no reason why it should then happen. But if it suits one particular uh, spectrum of, of politicians to exploit that popular idea, then they will do so. And I think what's happened is the political right has exploited this uh, popular idea that the government should be tightening its belt at the same time as um, individuals are because they've seen an advantage in it, uh, an advantage in the first case here of just hammering the government, but subsequently when the right became the government of pursuing that uh, popular appeal uh, of austerity uh, as a way of, of reducing the size of the state. And um, the most obvious example of that, for me at least, is George Osborne's new fiscal charter. Uh, the fiscal charter essentially says that the government should be going for, for yet more fiscal consolidation as quickly as possible so that we can run budget surpluses uh, within five years' time, and continue to run budget services. I've not found a single economist in the UK who actually supports the fiscal charter, who actually stand up and say, yeah, I think that's a good idea. But, nevertheless, the government is pursuing it, and the opposition finds it, gets in an awful muddle about whether it should be also agreeing with it or disagreeing with it. And even someone is on the, the sort of quite a bit left spectrum as the current shadow chancellor um, first decided he was going to support it and then the last minute decided he was going to oppose it. And the reason why he got in that terrible model, um, even though you couldn't find a single economist who was actually supporting this fiscal charter, was because of this strong popular appeal of the need for balancing the books, etc., etc. Okay, so that might explain why politicians might want to exploit that. But as any first-year macroeconomic student will tell you, the government in a recession is not like an individual in the sense that if it starts cutting back on its spending or raising taxes, that will affect everybody else's income and therefore it's a bad thing. So the question is, why has this sort of populism managed to, to defeat 
basic macroeconomic ideas. And uh, I think that's where it becomes particularly interesting for me. Um, and I can think of a number of reasons why, in a sense, most economists have got ignored when it comes to, to austerity. One reason is that um, the importance of economists working for financial institutions. And they have an influence for a number of different reasons. I think the most important, I mean, they tend to favor austerity, whatever, anyway, at any time. Um, or they favor fiscal, fiscal consolidation. Um, so in that sense, they're biased. But the more important influence, I think, is that they're the economists who, as they always describe themselves, they're close to the markets. So when both the media and government want to know, is there going to be uh, a, a, a government financing crisis? Are people suddenly going to stop buying government debt? They tend to turn to those economists. And uh, those economists like to play up the unpredictability of markets. I've kind of made an analogy between, you know, like, they, they, they like to pretend they're high priests, that the god is, is the financial markets. And it's a very sort of fickle god. You don't quite know what mood it's going to be in. And if you want to know what mood it's going to be in, you ask the high priests uh, who are close to the markets and therefore can tell you. And of course, as everyone knows, if you can get the rest of the population to believe that, then from the priest point of view, it's quite a nice setup. Uh, so I think there's quite a lot of that that goes on. So if you ask many people from uh, probably most people and economists in the financial markets, was there a real risk of a funding crisis in the UK and the US in 2010? They will say, oh yeah, it's a real risk. I think that was nonsense for the reasons I've already given. In fact, if you look at the economists who, who really do need to research the financial markets, what they tend to talk about is a shortage of safe assets, both before and after the recession. Uh, so quite the opposite. There was a, a lack of government debt, not too much government debt. Um, and of course, the other thing is that who does the media talk to in terms of what economists do they pick up the phone and ask questions to all the time. It is exactly those same economists, for very good reasons, because most of the time the news is about why did the currency move up or down that particular day. And if you phone academic and ask them why the currency's moved today, they'll just probably say, did it? Uh, so they're hopeless. Uh, whereas the guys in the financial markets would give you a nice story. Um, but of course, the occasional time when you really do need to talk to someone who knows about economic policy, uh, you really do need to talk about to academics. That, that's one sort of, okay, that's my gripe about uh, the way the media uh, deals with economics. But I think it's a rather more interesting institutional change that's happened, particularly over the last sort of 20, 30 years, uh, which actually has uh, allowed the case for austerity um, to, to go past too easily. And, and here I may um, say things that, that Patrick doesn't like. Um, I'll start, therefore, with a quote from um, a governor of, of the Bank of England, ex-governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King. And he said the following. He said, central banks are often accused of being obsessed by inflation. 
This is not true. If they're obsessed with anything, it's fiscal policy. And I think he was telling the truth there. I mean, you know, he, he, he knew of what he spoke, uh, being a central banker, previously being an academic. And the reason why central bankers are obsessed about fiscal policy is that the things that they, you know, the, the nightmares they have, the things that uh, wake them up at night, is being forced to monetize debt. Um, and so they tend to be very nervous about rising government debt and deficits. And the problem, I think, is that what's happened with gradual introduction of independent central banks everywhere is that we've given the job of stabilizing the economy to central banks, I think quite rightly. But that's also located the expertise about what will happen if you have fiscal consolidation in the same group, in central banks. So if you're a policymaker and you want to know, well, if I have fiscal consolidation, what effects that going to have on the economy? The obvious people to ask are people in central banks. They have the macro models. They do all these simulations and forecasts. And if you'd ask the people who actually run the models, they will tell you, well, fiscal consolidation is likely to have quite a big effect on output because interest rates are at the floor and we've no idea how effective this quantitative easing stuff is going to be. But of course, policymakers don't ask the guys actually running the models. They ask the people at the top. And the people at the top, following Mervyn King, tend to, first of all, say that, um, yes, government debt rising is a big problem. And secondly, they tend to be much too optimistic about what they can do to offset its impact of austerity. Uh, they'll be too optimistic about things like quantitative easing. Um, so I think that we get a distorted message as, as a result of, of putting all this, this knowledge within central banks. And you know, it's not obvious how to solve that problem because I think you know, monetary policy should be within central bank, independent central banks, but I think it's had this unfortunate side effect. Okay, so those are sort of general reasons why we might have had austerity. Why, despite the fact that the macroeconomics tells you that you should have delayed fiscal consolidation, it wasn't delayed. Um, and why, although Greece you know, and, and Germany might have been special factors, uh, there were the more general political forces which meant that austerity might well have happened anyway. But as I say, I'm still undecided about this. And, and to sort of end on a more optimistic note, I want to talk about the case of Canada. It's interesting from two points of view, uh, for two reasons. The first is what happened in the recession. Canada had fiscal expansion in the recession, just like the US, just like UK. But unlike the US and unlike the UK, it didn't switch that around to austerity in 2010. Basically, it carried on the stimulus, probably a little bit less, but, but kept it going. It didn't switch to austerity. As a result, in Canada, the recession was, was smaller than elsewhere. The recovery was very rapid. And crucially, interest rates moved above the floor. Unlike the US, unlike Canada, they moved not far, just 1% to 1%. But crucially, uh, that tells you that um, in a sense, the fiscal policy was right because interest rates could get above zero. 
And of course, the government that did this was a right-wing government. So it's not inevitable that right-wing governments should take this populist line uh, for ideological reasons. The second reason for quoting Canada uh, is what happened in the most recent election. In the most recent election, GDP has kind of turned down a bit over the last few quarters. Interest rates have started falling. They're getting very near that lower bound. And so the Liberals proposed to run some fiscal deficits to finance some public investment, which is a very sensible macroeconomic policy. They were opposed both by the Conservatives this time, but also by those further on the left, the NDP. And uh, the Liberals won. And here is the explanation, explanation of why, um, or the explanation given by the leader of the Liberals, Justin Trudeau, of why, um, if I can get it to work, no, There's, there should be a video at this point. No, uh, I've never, I've never tried to include a video in a presentation before. Um, and uh, it's like, I'm going to get some help here. Point. No. Yeah, thank you. This is what's happening to millions of Canadians in 10 years under Stephen Harper. His idea is to give benefits to the wealthy but make cuts to everything else has made it harder for most people to get ahead. And Mulcair promises more cuts. Now is not the time for cuts. In my plan, we'll kickstart the economy by investing in jobs and growth and lowering taxes for our middle class. That's real change. Okay, I thought I'd show you that because it just gives you an example of why uh, you don't necessarily, I mean, why it's possible to, to have good macroeconomics and also sell it. Uh, in this case on escalator, but you know you get the point. It's, it sounds quite good, I think. Okay, so let me just sum up. Uh, first of all, by delaying fiscal consolidation at a global level, and perhaps having a little bit less of it, a uh, bit more considered way in individual countries that needed more consolidation than everywhere else, the world could have avoided harmful austerity. Why didn't it? Why did we have austerity? I think we were unlucky. We were unlucky because Greece happened and Greece was essentially interpreted by non-Keynesian Germany. But also we had political opportunism plus ideology uh, pushing things in the US and the UK and maybe also uh, in Europe as well. I think institutional factors have weakened the influence of good macroeconomics on fiscal policy uh, for the reasons I talked about. So we've got some sort of strong underlying forces, which means that if we had another great recession, we might once again get austerity. Uh, but I'm not sure they're really so strong and it's not possible to offset those forces. Okay, thanks very much indeed.
Simon. That was uh, a tour de force. I'm sure you have convinced everybody in the room, and um, and in 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 uh, more or less all of what you said, you have largely convinced me. I'm I'm not sure we could have avoided all the austerity, even with the with the great help of uh, in Ireland. Well, but I, I think that I would fully agree with you uh, that uh, fiscal demand management in Europe, demand management in the in the major economies, was uh, held too tight or returned to too tightness too quickly, and and is still too tight in the in the uh, area as a whole. In Ireland, it would be very interesting to um, to see whether we can uh, we could validate the proposition that it, it could have been any less tight. One thing you didn't talk about, and I thought you might talk about, about as as a way out of you, you didn't talk too much about debt, sort of dismissing that. Well, it's it's all just alarmism in the financial markets, uh, but we, we actually experienced some of it here and in other countries. You know, sometimes the financial markets uh, do um, follow through w with their um, with their aggressive stance. I wonder whether more could have been done uh, by the nature of the debt accumulated by peripheral countries. So, uh, for example, uh, part of the debt was accumulated by the Irish government to pour money into the bank, only part to, to the banks. But European funds could have been used to directly capitalize those, and then they'd get the return from it. Mm. Uh, in the end, it might not have been a, a good deal for Ireland, but it would have removed that debt overhang and allowed uh, faster growth. Or even for the debt that the government was assuming, could have been um, linked to, the, the payments could have been linked to GDP or something like that, which would say, okay, you're in a bad shape now, you don't have to pay anything, but if you do recover, and mm. when you do recover, you pay mm. more. And that's mm. uh, one, of, one of the, the formula, formulations that, that could work, work for Greece. Yes. Uh, yes. But that would be another lecture. Yes, and I, 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 I think I agree with you, but my essential point about, um, and you know, I also agree that Ireland, for whatever you know reasons, did require a lot of fiscal consolidation. But I think the and experienced you know, that just as I talked about the central bankers' nightmare, the the uh, finance minister's nightmare is suddenly people stop buying his debt. Yeah. Uh, it's the worst thing can happen. Um, and you know, Ireland experienced that. But, but my point is Ireland experienced that because the ECB wasn't doing its job. Ah. Um, I mean, it's a bit early for me to comment on that. <laughs> yes. um, so you know, the, the, the point, the key you know, question, one, one of the things that was said that the, the people in France, for example, complained about was why interest rates on their government debt was so much higher than the UK, uh, even though their budget deficit was lower and their debt was lower, etc. And the essential reason at the time was that the Bank of England, uh, if there had been a sudden strike by people not buying UK government debt, the Bank of England would step in. Mm. What that means, of course, is that the markets don't therefore need to worry that uh, there might be a uh, a sudden strike in people buying uh, UK government debts. Uh, so they act as this sovereign lender of last resort, and the ECB could, and now does, act in that way, but only since September 2012. And what that program does is, instead of allowing there to be 19 countries that can be picked off one by one, uh, it says, no, this, you're dealing with a union here. Yeah, exactly. And 
the way I often put it is that if if you're in in institution which is buying government debt uh, and you're trying to decide whether to buy um, Irish government debt, uh, you you've got to worry about two things. You've got to worry about well, is the country itself going to default? Is Ireland going to suddenly say, right, we're we're going to default on some of our debt? But the second thing you've got to worry about is what the rest of the market thinks the Irish government's going to do. Uh, because if you decide the Irish government isn't going to default and buy some of that debt, but the rest of the market doesn't, then Ireland will run out of money and be forced to default and you'll lose. Uh, so you've got to worry about two things. But if you've got a central bank behind you that says, OK, if the market doesn't buy it, we'll buy it, that means I can invest in Irish government debt, and even if the rest of the market has a wobbly, I'll still get my money back because the central bank give it back to me. And so that's a crucial role the central bank can play as this lender of last resort, which the ECB now plays, but didn't play in 2010 or 11 or most of 2012. And which some lawyers, but they were wrong, said we couldn't do because of what they got 